Hello and welcome to this episode of Smarter, a podcast by clinicians for clinicians, brought to you by Marta, an Australian leader in healthcare for more than a century. My name is Gillian Whiting. And I'm Catherine Cooper, Clinical Specialty Coordinator for Mothers, Babies and Women's Health at Marta. And we're coming to you from Mianjin, the land on which this podcast is being recorded. Today, we are joined by Dr. Luke Jardine, Deputy Director of Neonatology at Mater Mothers Hospitals. In addition to his role at Mater, Luke is also an Associate Professor at the University of Queensland School of Medicine. His professional interests include extreme prematurity at the borderlines of viability, non-invasive respiratory support and quality improvement in neonatal intensive care units. Today, he's joining us to talk about how to handle extreme prematurity. Marta. Caring for the community for more than a century. Innovators in health, education and research. Home to world-class clinicians. Facilities. High quality, patient centered Largest and leading maternity. discovery. We are Marta. We are Marta. We are Marta. This is Smarter. Luke, welcome to Smarter. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We're talking about um, extreme prematurity. Um, how early can babies feasibly survive? Um, yeah, it's a really good question, Gillian. So um, it's a bit of history. The, the less than 28 weeks is what we call extreme prematurity. And it's a really, really old definition. So it came up in the 70s, actually, they made that definition. And the survival back then at less than 28 weeks was about 20%. So that's why it was called extreme. Um, but we've we've moved a long way since then. And now really our, our sort of our earliest babies that are reported as survivor as early as 21 weeks um, in the literature. So we haven't seen any babies at this point survive at 20 weeks um, reported, but there's definitely cases worldwide where they're reporting survival at 21 weeks and 22 weeks. The outcomes at that gestation at this this stage aren't great, um, but there's no doubt potentially a baby could survive from as early as 21 weeks. So are we? is it more um, a more common occurrence that we're beginning to resuscitate babies at 22, 23 weeks in that sort of grey area of viability? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we've moved our resuscitation um, thresholds down. So currently at the MARTA, we have a resuscitation threshold of 23 weeks, um, but we have attempted resuscitation on a couple of babies at 22 weeks. They've been towards the end of 22 weeks. I think they were 25, 22 plus five days, those babies that we attempted resuscitation on. Um, and when I first started at the MARTA, we didn't resuscitate 23 weeks and it was a, a big move for us to move into that 23-week threshold probably about 10 years ago. We started. So, yeah, it's we're definitely moving our thresholds down. I, I don't think there's any more babies being born at 21 or 22 weeks or 23 weeks than there was in the past. It's just no one even considered really attempting to resuscitate those babies. We've heard in earlier episodes that every week counts. So what's the difference in caring for babies at that 22, 23, 24, 25 weeks? Yeah, so I, I agree every week counts, but it's probably every hour, every day counts. Um, so we, we do have some evidence that Babies at the beginning of the week, so 23 weeks plus zero days, don't do as well as babies who are 23 weeks plus five days, for instance. So time does count. The, the 
biggest difference is uh, probably their their lung their lung development and then their skin development. So um, looking after a 22, 23 weeker is very different to looking after a 24 weeker, even 25 weeker. Uh, the lungs keep aren't fully developed actually, haven't finished branching until about 24 weeks. So if you're looking after a baby at 22 or 23 weeks, their lungs may not even um, be fully branched, let, let alone have alveoli, alveoli developing. Uh, so ventilating them is really difficult and the damage that we do to the lungs by ventilating them is is much more severe. It um, It's actually not good for lungs to be artificially ventilated. Uh, the skin at, of a 22 and a 23-weeker is incredibly fragile. It's it's basically translucent. It doesn't have any of the the thickness of the, the layers called the um, stratum corneum. And so as a result, it's incredibly fragile and it breaks down and they get pressure sores and infections and it's it's really hard to look after their skin at that gestation. But it matures really quickly. So as soon as you're born and get exposed to the environment, the skin starts thickening up. So after about a week of life, you, you probably no difference really between a 23-weeker and a 25-weeker. Um, the the technology and the so things like ventilators and nutrition and access is the other thing that's really different in a 22 and a 23-weeker. Um, so they need a lot more fluid. Uh, they have much smaller tubes and lines and they can be really technically difficult to insert when you're dealing with a baby who's maybe three or 400 grams. So that's the, the big differences. And then obviously outcome-wise, much better chance of survival and um, less chance of disability if you're more mature. Given all those differences and the challenges and the fact that we may not see, you know, we may not be caring for those tiny babies very often, how do we build and maintain skills to look after them? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. So what's happening worldwide is a push towards small baby units. So dedicated teams within teams that look after these really high-risk tiny babies. Uh, we haven't got any units in Australia yet that have a, a tiny baby team, um, but there are units around the world that have set that up. So one of the best-known ones is a, um, a unit in Iowa um, and their outcomes at 21, 22, 23 weeks are probably almost the best in the world with survival and decreased risk of disability. So I, I think the way we'll move in the future is the development of a small baby unit. Um, and we, I think we almost definitely need one in Queensland now. And that involves bringing mums to the MARTA or wherever it's set up before the babies are born, being counselled by a, a designated team. And then once baby's born, being looked after by highly trained um, and highly skilled um, nursing and medical staff. Where we fit it in, I don't know. <laughs> We're pretty busy as it is. Yeah. It's almost like the more you do, the better you get at it. Oh, there's yeah. no doubt. And um, it's not just the you, you get better at looking after those babies, but there's really big flow-on effects for the more mature babies in the nursery. Uh, so the units around the world that have the best survival at 22, 23 weeks also have the best survival and the, and the best outcomes for their 24, 25, 26. So, and we have a lot more babies born at those gestations than those extreme, you know, 21, 22, 23 gestations. So the, the majority get a lot more benefit by going to the effort of setting up these small baby teams. 
According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, approximately 2,800 babies were born before reaching 28 weeks gestation in 2021, accounting for 0.9% of total births. Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland recorded the highest number of extreme premature births with 796, 768 and 616 respectively. Going back to resuscitation, um, the stance on whether to resuscitate or not resuscitate, does that depend on um, where where you are with the facilities, even different countries? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in Australia, we tend to use this, what we call a, a shared decision-making model for those really small babies. So what I'm talking about here really is those 22, 23, 24-week infants the chances of survival and having a good outcome from 25 weeks is actually really high now. So we think those babies, it's in their best interest to be resuscitated. But those sort of more extreme babies or the what we call that limit of viability or the, it's actually the grey zone where we don't know if the baby will survive or not, um, but there's potential to survive if we offer resuscitation. So that grey zone, so at the moment it's really our 22, 23, 24-week babies. We sit down with the parents and we we have a discussion. So we tell them these are our numbers at the moment. This is the chance of survival if we actively resuscitate. Um, This is the chance of having disability long-term if we actively resuscitate. And it's a really individual family decision um, about which way they want to go. So they they actually have to make that decision um, as to whether or not we resuscitate their baby uh, it's it's a really hard decision. Um, we don't make the decision for them. That's a very old-fashioned medical approach, a paternalistic approach where the doctor makes all the decision and we don't think that's the best approach for these really difficult life-changing decisions. So we give them the information that we've got and we give them their options and talk through the pros and cons of both and then the parents can help us out a bit by telling us what their their wishes were or their expectations Um, and then we can sort of help tailor what's going to be best for their family. What lessons have have we learned, if possible, from uh, from other countries like Japan? Yeah, so there's a few um, countries around the world where they've been way more proactive in resuscitating these, you know, these 22, 23-weekers um, than traditionally we have been in Australia. And th- there's two really great examples. The first is the, is the Japanese approach, and they actually have mandated resuscitation from 22 weeks um, in their country. So the parents don't get a choice. Their, their babies are resuscitated. The payoff for that is that their outcomes are excellent um, from a survival point of view um, when you look at the international statistics. So and I think it's that what we talked about earlier, that the more you do it, the better you get at it. Um, and so they've been doing that since the 90s. They've had that mandated resuscitation, so over 25 years now. The other approach is the sweet, um, the Scandinavian approach, so um, Norway in particular. Uh, they had some big studies done in the early 2000s where some units were actively resuscitating and other units weren't at, at 22 and 23 weeks. And then they had a national approach they looked at all their data and the units that were resuscitating those little babies were having much better outcomes in the rest of the country so they actually took a a countrywide approach and mandated that they would resuscitate 
or at least offer resuscitation at 22 and 23 weeks and all the whole country's outcomes have improved as a result. Is that something that Australia should be, could be looking at? Um, we could be. I, I still quite like the shared decision-making approach. I think it's really important to involve families and respect their wishes. Um, the hard part is trying to give them the information that they need to make those decisions in a timely manner um, and in a way that they can actually understand what they're really signing up for. Look, we've talked about babies that are born in these small baby units or even here at Marta where we've got a lot of resources. What about babies that have spontaneous preterm birth outside of a tertiary centre? How do they do? Yeah, the the babies who are outborn, um, not in units that are used to looking after little babies, don't do as well. Uh, there's no doubt that their outcomes are much worse than babies who are what we call inborn in units that are looking after little babies all the time. We there's probably a whole heap of reasons. It might be the condition that actually forces them to be born so quickly, um, increases their risk of having a bad outcome. Um, but there's no doubt that the teams who are resuscitating them out in those peripheral environments just don't do this very often. So getting an airway, for instance, and keeping the baby warm and giving adequate nutrition, getting a line in, all of that stuff's really challenging. It's challenging for us, but we're doing it a lot more often than they are. They may only see one or two of these babies in their whole careers. A paper by Emily Kalanda and Karen Atwell determined that in the first year of life, extremely premature babies had an average of 3.4 hospital admissions and two emergency department presentations. They also had an average of 16 specialist attendances, 33 pathology tests and six diagnostic imaging tests performed. Talking about the risks for extremely premature babies and how they're handled, what are the short-term risks and how should clinicians monitor and handle them? So the, the earliest risk we have is, is breathing problems or respiratory failure. So all of these babies need help with their breathing at this really extreme gestation, almost all of them need to be um, a, an endotracheal tube inserted and be hooked up to a ventilator. Um, so that that's that's actually technically really hard to get a, a little airway into a, a baby that's maybe, what, three or 400 grams. Um, so that's hard. Keeping them oxygenated and keeping their CO2 clearance on the ventilator is really tricky. So their lungs tend to, uh, you know, pop is the easy way to describe it. They blow pneumothoraxes really quickly, which we often have to drain. Um, and the volumes involved in ventilating is often, you know, mils or even sometimes less than a mil that we're putting in per breath. So that's the short-term risk really is, is respiratory failure. We do use surfactant, which is a, basically it's a detergent that makes the lungs expand easier. Um, so that helps, but it j definitely doesn't solve the, the problems um, completely. Uh, so that's the earliest short-term risk. There's lots of other sort of short-term in-hospital risks. Um, infection is a massive risk for these babies. The nutrition that we use to keep the babies alive and growing is really rich in vitamins and minerals and sugar and bacteria love, love that nutrition and um, increases the risk of infection. Um, and all the things that we do to keep the baby alive, all the tapes we put on them and um, skin pricks to do their blood tests, all of those things, every time we do something like that increases their risk of infection. So we're constantly watching for infection in these bubs and treat early with antibiotics if we're worried. 
there's lots of problems with their gut. So they're just really not designed to be fed milk at that point. Um, and they can get a condition called necrotizing enterocolitis, uh, which can cause sometimes the holes in the gut and them to need an emergency operations to, to fix that. Um, so that's, that's a big risk, big risk. And then bleeding into the brain is, is a massive risk for extreme, pre, extremely preterm babies. So that's intraventricular hemorrhage. Um, and that's one of the conditions that also increases their risk of long-term disability. So, but you can have a severe bleed into the brain, um, and the baby can deteriorate really quickly and cause them to die. So that's another one of the short-term risks. How do you balance that beneficial versus detrimental with some of the treatments that we're giving can cause issues? Yeah, it, it, as you said, it's a balance. You, you do what you think's best and you watch for the complications and then you manage those as they arise. Um, keeping the parents um, engaged and on the same page when you don't know what's going to happen as well is is part of the, the management. So it's not just managing the baby, you've got to manage the family and their expectations. And when it comes to long-term disability, I, I can't tell you when that baby's going home from hospital if they're okay or not um, because a lot of these things don't present till they're bigger. So, you know, things like cerebral palsy, the average age of diagnosis is 18 months of age. Um, some of the learning impairments you don't know till the kids are going to school. So, yeah, it's it's hard. How common are those long-term risks that you mentioned? We, we tend to group it into gestation specific. So we'll talk about 23 weeks or 24 weeks or 25 weeks. So at 23 weeks, for instance, the, um, the chance of having some form of long-term disability is about 50%. It's, it's roughly 50-50. Um, as you start to move towards uh, 20, say 26 weeks, it's probably only about 20% chance of having some long-term problems. And by the time you get to 30 weeks, it's less than 10%. So it's really drops off quite quickly. Do we see those long-term sequelae and um, uh, statistics borne out in Japan? Yeah, so interestingly, they do have the same sort of progression. So they're extremely, they're 22, 20 week, 23 weeks do have worse outcomes than their bigger babies. Um, but overall, they're reporting slightly lower rates of long-term disability than what we do. And it's really is the, the baby's less than 28 weeks. I think by the time worldwide babies are getting the 28 weeks, everyone's outcomes are very similar. It's in those, those more extreme gestations where the, there's variability. Some of those health conditions you mentioned have uh, lifelong um, management and concerns. What conversations and how do you broach this and discuss this with parents at that point in time? So I I try to tell them this is what we see, you know, th these are the chances, these are the numbers, but ultimately for the baby and the family, they either have the problem or they don't. So, and if they do have the problem, then what's important is to know, you know, what can you do about it? How do you manage it? What sort of um, life um, that those children can expect to lead and um, the help and support that you can give them if they do have problems. The Australian and New Zealand Neonatal Network has a register of infants admitted to a neonatal intensive care unit during 2011 to 2014. 48.7% of those born at 23 weeks gestation or earlier survived to discharge. 82.5% were then followed up at the two to three year mark. Of those, it's understood approximately 86% did not have cerebral palsy, 72% had no sign of cognitive delay, 
62% had no sign of language delay and 69% had no indication of motor delays. I'm interested in parental involvement in these tiny little babies, Luke. So you've already mentioned their skin's barely formed, they've got tubes and drips. How do we promote that parental closeness and potentially even skin to skin without jeopardising these little vulnerable babies? Yeah, so we, we think sort of our touch as the medical and nursing professionals is what we call the, the necessary touch, but it's not nice touch. Um, and parents really are the, the most important when it comes to providing touch that's important for care and comfort and bonding and all those sorts of things, which we know are really important for a baby's development. Uh, so yes, it's, it's hard and it's a risk getting these babies out for cuddles, but we think it's incredibly important and our nurses do a lot of training, um, so they can bring these babies out safely. Um, it's really good for not only the baby that we find their heart rate settles, their respiratory rate settles, but it's great for mothers and, and fathers to be cuddling their baby. You know, it's, it's normal. That's what you're supposed to do with the baby. And things like mum's milk production goes up if they're getting regular skin to skin, their, their mood and behaviour um, improves. It's less chance of getting postnatal depression. So there's lots and lots of benefits for parents to be involved touching their babies. Occasionally we do have babies who are really unwell and we don't think it's in their best interest to come out. But in that situation, we still want the parents to be touching their baby. They can still read a book to their baby. We have books in the nursery on the wall that parents can read at any point. Um, so, yeah, all of those, we, we think that's really important. It's, you know, it's the parent's child. It's not ours. We're just looking after them for a while until the parents can take them home. You must be asked a million questions at this point. Is, is there one that's more common than everything else? Oh, the question I get asked the most about my job is, oh, that must be really tough. How, I don't know how you do that. That must be really tough. But I flip it around and say, well, if I didn't do my job, all of these babies would die. So, yes, not all babies survive, but most do, actually. Most of our babies are surviving and they're going home and, you know, they go and have good quality of life and they might discover the cure for cancer. Who knows? So I, I think that's probably the question I get asked the most, how do you do this job? But I, I think it's a really rewarding job and um, I, I love that side of my job. But that, I love the challenge, um, but I also love seeing the outcome. Rewarding and challenging and, like you say, normally great outcomes, but still an emotional burden. How, what, do you, what do you recommend for clinicians dealing with that sort of emotional burden? Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> um, if I had the, all the answers to that, I'd, 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 I think I'd be a much happier person. Um, it, it's really, it's really hard and the work's incredibly stressful at times. And, um, yeah, we, we, we all struggle from, from time to time with difficult cases or, or bad outcomes. Um, but we do support each other as much as we can. So talk to our peers, um, get time out of the nursery, review cases when things haven't gone well, try and learn from it, what could we do better next time. But we are, it's also too important to celebrate your successes and, you know, we've had a 23-week go home, you know, good good job, team, well done. So, yeah, no, it, it is challenging from time to time. There seems to be a few myths uh, around extreme prematurity. What are the big ones um, that, that you want to bust? Well, I think the biggest one, the biggest myth is, is there's a limit to viability. So, you know, this, there's a certain gestation that below that number you shouldn't attempt resuscitating a baby. Um, and that limit has constantly been pushed down for 
ever since I've been a neonatologist, but way before I started as well. So I, I don't know what the limit of viability is. Um, I said, I, we haven't had a 20-weeker survive in the literature, but there's definitely 21-weekers who survive. Um, at the MARTA, our limit at the moment seems to be 23 weeks. So I think that's my the biggest myth that there's this known limit and there's a point where it's all hopeless and you shouldn't do anything. Um, I think if we do everything we possibly can as well as we can, then some of these babies are going to survive. What's the next big thing for the future in terms of research and in terms of that threshold of viability? Yeah, so I, I guess... The small baby team approach is is the first that we've already talked about. Uh, the research, there's some really interesting stuff going on in research and the thing I think that might change the whole way we work is um, the artificial placentas. So um, they're doing lots of lamb studies at the moment where they essentially put the baby into a fluid-filled sac and they cannulate the umbilical vessels and give the baby or the, the lamb nutrition, and then they can also give medications to um, stimulate the lung development. So they've kept preterm lambs alive in these these artificial placentas for a few weeks, um, and that just buys that extra you know week or two of gestation will make a big difference to survivability for some of these babies. So we're not expecting them to stay in an artificial placenta till term, um, but if at least can buy a couple of weeks, allow the lungs to develop a bit more, then we might significantly decrease their complications. So that's, they just need to move to baby studies now. I think the lamb studies are there and the next step is actually trying to enrol some babies. That's real science fiction stuff. Hey? It is, yeah. Yeah, it's a, there's some great, if you get onto um, YouTube, there's some really interesting videos on the artificial placentas and lots of the research is actually being done in Australia out of Melbourne. So, um, yeah, we're kind of leading the world in that respect. That's great to hear. Uh, Luke, thanks so much for joining us on Smarter Today. Before you go, though, we would like to introduce you to a little segment we call The Checkup. So, yes, we want to know about uh, Luke, the medical professional, and the person as well. So Catherine has five questions to ask you. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. okay. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Professional surfer. What is your superstition? Oh... My superstition. Um, well, in the nursery, we we sort of have a bit of a su- superstition that you, if you say you're not allowed to say the quiet word, right? So you never say the quiet word in the nursery because it, all hell's about to break loose. I think that's yeah. a shared superstition yeah. amongst all health professionals. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was your first concert? First concert was Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Oh, that's cool. Um, in the round at the Brisbane Entertainment Centre. My parents took us down from the Sunshine Coast. So it was it was a big thing. Yeah, I loved um the gambler, Kenny Rogers, the gambler. Gambler, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Who was the last person you FaceTimed? My brother. And if you could impart one piece of knowledge to a medical student, what would it be? Pick a specialty where you consult Monday to Friday, nine to five. (laughs) That pays really, really well. (laughs) Fantastic. Perfect way to end, Luke. Thanks for joining us on Smarter. Thank you very much. And thanks to those who've tuned in. See you next time on Smarter.